You can open it up to Genesis 12. Genesis 12. And let's begin our time in God's Word this morning with a word of prayer. Our Father in Heaven, we're thankful for um, your goodness to us and your kindness in all of your ways. There is no situation that we face, no problem, no anxiety, no worry, um, that you are truly anxious or worried or concerned about. Our problems are not problems to you, but our problems are tools by you to be wielded for your purpose. And I pray that you would use this passage and this message to um, let this thought sink into our minds and this truth about you um, dwell in our hearts even today. And whoever is in this room who may be going through some sort of problem, worry, or anxiety, I pray that you would use um, this word to transform their mind and their thinking about you and about their situation while they are in it. I pray this all in, in your name, seeking your grace for your glory. Amen. Listen now, I, I'm, a, I'm a goodwill fan just like the rest of you. Who doesn't like a good goodwill run? I, there are truly some things, some items of clothing that you can buy at goodwill you cannot buy anywhere else. Where else am I going to find my my shirts with all of those accomplishments that I have not done. Huh? Where else am I going to find clothes like that? Where else am I going to find all of those items that I didn't know that I needed, but now I know that I want, now that I see them on the rack right there at Goodwill? But I will say, if you are at all a shopper of Goodwill, and I'm not saying half of you are, I'm saying maybe two of you are, like me, um, you, you, know, you know what you're buying when you go to Goodwill, don't you? You're not going there, you're not going there to get truly brand new stuff. You're not going there because to, to find um, beautiful, perfect, pristine clothing. Maybe some of you find those things. I don't. And that's not why I go to Goodwill. I go to Goodwill to find second-hand, second-hand clothes that have been worn a little bit, and now they are cheaper in theory, right? I, I don't want to spend the full price on clothing. That's why I go to a consignment shop and find clothes. But I, I go to a Goodwill or I go to a consignment shop with the right expectations in mind, right? This is second-hand clothing. It won't last as long. It, it may have a slight stain on one of the sleeves, but that's okay because I'm going for the logo. I'm not going for the, the sleeve, right? And I'm, and I'm fine if it wears out kind of twice as fast as the other clothes in my closet because I'm not spending full price on this. At least... At least when I was a kid growing up, that's the way Goodwill was. Now it's almost full price just to go to Goodwill. But that's the thing about Goodwill, right? You go there with an expectation, right? This is going to be secondhand. The quality might not be as strong, and not because it's, they're not giving you good brands. It's just the clothes have been worn. It's been, it's been used. It's maybe a little bit weaker. Maybe not as, as, in, uh, as strong as it used to be. And, and if you go to Goodwill or to a consignment shop with that expectation, you, you're never disappointed, are you? Matter of fact, you're thrilled with some of the things you found. For example, right? You find so many good things at Goodwill. She found that at Goodwill. I wasn't... Never mind. Okay. <laughs> and, and for cheapskates like me, and we're fine with, we're fine with chew, <laughs> chewing, uh, chewing on... Uh, Chewing on less quality items for the, the price we save, right? Who wants to spend all that money on a mole skin egg? 
when you can buy a Amazon Basics book that looks exactly the same, but the pages fall out after, after t- 10 years, you know? You're fine with that because you want to spend less money. Who cares if the Oreos at the dollar store come out of the bag already stale? They're cheaper. They're only one dollar. And you just put them in the freezer. They taste just as good. Who really cares? Who, who, who cares if the marshmallow mateys that you can buy from Aldi aren't as flavorful or colorful as Lucky Charms? It's half the price and my kids will plow through it anyway. I don't care. I'm expecting cheapness because I want cheapness. I don't want to spend as much money. But some of you, not all of you, don't care if your pen doesn't start writing for the first you know, three paragraphs. You want that big pen price, so you don't care about pen quality. Now, you probably don't think this way, but maybe, maybe there are some people in the world that think, you know, God's promises sometimes feel a little bit secondhand. They sometimes feel a little bit chintzy, cheap. They, they lack the quality that you know, would really be helpful at a time like this. God's promises sometimes feel more generic than their name brands. God's promises seem simplistic. They seem, well, good enough for kindergarten and good enough for deathbeds. But when the real rubber meets the road and the real issues of my life that I face, God's promises don't seem all of that powerful, right? That, that, That maybe is what some people just expect of God. God's promises are not sufficient to actually give me real comfort and real security and real obedience, real real obedience in this life that I'm leading because God's promises are kind of weak. Maybe perhaps, I'm not saying you think that way, but maybe some people think that way. Good for kids, good for deathbeds, but not really helpful with my actual life problems. When, when, when real life starts, when the real problems of life come, people like this kind of throw out God's promises. They say, well, obedience was nice while I was in kindergarten. Obedience may be nice if I'm right before my deathbed, but obedience might not work out when I really have some real problems that I have to face and some real anxieties that won't go away by wishing them away. Now, now, how, how do possibly God's promises seem distant or meaningless or cheap? I mean, we, we hear a lot of God's promises, and, and maybe when we hear those promises, you can, you can do a basic Google search about the promises of God, and, and even reading through them, you're like, wow, this, this feels kind of distant to my life, because my life doesn't feel like these promises are suggesting. For example, God says to us, have no fear, for I am with you. Be not afraid, for I am your God. Oh, that's good. That's good when you're in kindergarten, but what about when I actually have real anxieties in life and, and real burdens and real worries? Those promises seem a little cheap to me. Or how about when God says, count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds? Obviously, this guy doesn't know what trials are, right? How can you have joy in trials? Or how about this? When, when God says, all things work out for the good of those who love him, that, that doesn't seem very close to reality, does it? That seems, that seems distant. That doesn't seem helpful. It doesn't seem like a quality promise that I can get through this crisis with. Or, or in Philippians 4, 6 through 7, where, where God says um, that he promises peace to those who pursue him in prayer. 
That, that doesn't feel like that happens right away, so we're, we're quick to give up on that promise. Or in Matthew 6.33, where God promises to supply all of the needs of his disciples, that, that promise doesn't always feel real in our life and in our experience, and so we're quick to give up on it, right? Or how about Deuteronomy 4.29, where God promises to be found by those who diligently seek him, right? That doesn't always seem like a real promise. Sometimes it seems like our life and our problems of our life kind of drowned out those promises and make them cheap, secondhand, generic, not very helpful, not, not the quality that we need to get through our life. Now, of course, I'm being a little bit sarcastic, I know, but I'm, I'm actually really thinking this is an issue that we face. We come to our life and our problems, and suddenly the reality and the presence and the importance of God and his promises just fade away, right? When our problems get big, our God gets small, and his promises and his presence get small. And then we have to say, well, I guess I have to solve this problem on my own. I I need to kind of roll up my sleeves and figure this out. God's not helping with this situation. I'm I'm more anxious now trying to trust in him. So I'm just going to do some things to help myself out. Sometimes sometimes our, our problems seem to so pile up pile up and God's promises seem to never solve any of those problems that we are willing to give up on God. For, for example, just a few, few examples maybe in your life where, where God's promises will feel this way. Maybe you see wicked men, sinful men, sinful men, sinful women, what, however you want to rephrase it. You see them prosper and you see the godly perish or die. You see people, people who are supposed to be Christians especially, being rude, unkind, harsh to one another, and God's promises about the blessedness of his, of his church family just seem to fade away. You maybe feel fat or overweight, and you feel like everyone's looking at you and judging you, and any promises about God's love for you just evaporate into midair, right? Uh, there's a lust. There's a lust and temptation burning in your heart, and the presence and the promises of God just seem like they don't matter anymore. Maybe perhaps the fashion demands of your day uh, are more than what your parents allow, and honoring your parents just seems so empty, so, so weak. Maybe anger and, and yelling gets much better results at the dinner table than patience and love. Maybe all the Christian guys in your circles stink. That there's a great guy down the street, not really a Christian, but he's much kinder than all these Christian guys in my circle. At least he's got a job. Now, I'm not cheapening these struggles of faith, but I'm just simply saying, I'm just simply saying, don't you feel it sometimes? Following God is hard, and sometimes following God is difficult, and sometimes God seems very small, and his promises seem very weak. And following him in those And those problems can be very difficult. And that's why I love this passage here before us tonight. We see that Abraham, that great man of faith, has all sorts of problems following God. But we learn something very important and very significant about those problems and about what God is doing in those problems. But let's just look at some of these problems. First off, the first problem that Abram has in um, Genesis 12, verse 10, is we see 
the land problem. We'll refer to it as the land problem. Notice verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Now, just to bring you back up to speed, remember, Abram just journeyed to this land that he is now in. And while he is in this land, God said, this is the land that I'm going to bring all your promises to pass in. I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to cause, I'm going to cause so much blessing in your life that I'm going to cause you to be a blessing to others. And I'm going to give you a seed to become a nation in this land. But, but notice, verse 10, verse 10. Notice what's repeated there, right? Land. In the land. And then notice, famine. Famine. Severe famine. Notice there is a severe famine and a problem with this land that's supposed to carry all of these promises, blessings. As a matter of fact, being in this land is hard. It's difficult. It's difficult to follow God in this land. And, and notice, the famine is severe and the famine is in the land. It's almost like this famine is localized to this land and this land only. All Abram has to do is leave the land and his problems go away. Why? Why, why is God doing this? Uh, Abram is where God has specifically told him to be and given him specific promises when he remains there but now this land is unlivable. This, this land will be the death of him and the death of all these promises if he stays here for too long. Now, a little bit of background on the land, even, even on a good year, where Abram is right now, he's in southern Judah, southern Israel, it's in a place called the Negev, and, 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 and there was very little water even on a good year in these parts. They would get an average annual rainfall of about 4 to 12 inches of rain. Now, you could compare that to current Bakersfield uh, trends. It, between the year 1991 and 2020, we had average annual rainfall of about uh, 6.5 um, inches of rain. You're like, man, come on. Come on, Abram. If we can do it, you can do it. Well, we've got this thing called rain for rent. If we didn't have all of these sprinklers constantly, you know what our land would look like? Well, it would look like the place where there aren't sprinklers. You don't have to go very far to find places where there aren't sprinklers. Have you seen the Kern River lately? It doesn't look, well, I guess it has water now, but, you know, it's just, it's a very dry place. And when you don't get a lot of water, it gets dry really, really quick. And, and, and this is a good year. This is a good year in the Negev. When they actually have a famine, everything crumbles. The, the economy of the region just falls apart completely. Matter of fact, archaeologists have been able to detect a 300-year drought in this region just from the devastation that they can unearth with a shovel. 300 years. There was significant famine happening in this land constantly because they, they didn't know how to irrigate pro properly, perhaps, and there was just a lot of problems with the world because, once again, um, newsflash, the world is fallen and the world is difficult, and this is part of the curse now, that's the, that's the land problem. And, and, and notice the solution that Abram quickly pursues. He goes down to Egypt. Now, Egypt actually didn't have the problems that Israel had in this time. You know why? They had this wonderful thing called a Nile River that didn't dry up. And they actually could withstand very significant droughts in the region because of this river. 
And that's how, by the way, we know by the end of Genesis that things are really bad in the world because even Egypt is suffering with a famine. Now, now all this to say, in, in verse 10, when, when Abram goes to Egypt, what is he doing? He, he's making a very logical, rational, natural choice. He's saying, this land is unlivable. I'm going to go where it is livable. Now, you might say, what's the big deal? Well, I mean, we, we could give him some credit. Notice he is sojourning there. He is not moving there. He's just sojourning there. But, but what is the big deal about Abram leaving the land and going to Egypt? Well, let's just be clear what it means to leave the land. This isn't just taking a vacation. This isn't just you know, going on a tour of Egypt to see the, you know, the pyramids and things like that. Abram, wh- what is he doing? He is doubting the promises of God in this action. And once again, this is a very natural response. I would probably do this as well, but this is what this means theologically. God had promised to bless him in this land and make him a great nation. God had said he'd do that. Now, to remain in the land would say, I don't know how God's going to work this out, but I am going to allow him to solve this problem but I'm going to choose to follow him. It's not so much about remaining in the land as much as it's saying, this is God's clear word to me, and I'm going to obey it. Now, God probably doesn't give you a clear word, stay in Bakersfield through the drought and endure. He doesn't say that to you, but he tells you to remain faithful to him and trust in him and believe in him in other ways. Uh, Purity, right? Holiness, he calls you to follow him, and it's not always easy. And matter of fact, it seems natural to go the opposite direction at times, right? This is what Abram's doing, though. He is basically saying, Lord, I do not tr- truly trust that your way, your power, your provision are sufficient for my real-life, down-to-earth problems. That's what he's saying. And then I need to kind of pull my own bootstraps up and, and solve this with my own strength and my own wisdom and my own wit. That's the the, the picture that we see here with this land problem. When God's promises feel weak, distant, we are very tempted to do it our way. That's what Abram does. But this leads to our next big problem. By the way, the outline is very simple. Just have fill-in-the-blanks, the blank problem, the blank problem. So far we've talked about the land problem. That's a big problem for his faith. And now we have another big problem for his faith. We'll call this, you'll love this, ladies, we'll call this the beauty problem. And you're like, what? That's not a problem. Well, it was to Abram because he just happened to have a real looker of a wife. Look at verse 11. Now, and, or, and it happened that he drew near to entering Egypt um, as he drew near to entering Egypt, that he saw, that he said to Sarai, his wife, Now behold, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and it will be that when the Egyptians see you, that they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please, say that you are my sister, so that it may go well with me because of you, and that I may live on account of you. Now, once again, there are just a few observations about his comments here. Interesting note. I think this is a good thing. Did you know that these are the first words that Abram says in the entire Bible? That seems significant, maybe. Husbands, let's learn a lesson from this. I don't know. None of you are husbands, so don't learn a lesson from this. 
don't, don't ever apply this, but hey, that's the first words that Abram says in the entire Bible. He calls his wife beautiful in appearance. And the words he uses there definitely refer to the outward appearance. Now, probably shouldn't say this, but the, the, the word you beautiful could refer to something that's exceptional, attractive, uh, outwardly magnificent. But it also is referred to cows that are sleek. So I don't know, you know, but it's, it's definitely referring to, to outward beauty. It's referring to outward beauty that's exceptional. And, and notice, um, Sarah is this way even at the age of 65. Now, she would live to be about twice this age, 127 or so. So maybe perhaps, you know, life lifespans kind of made everything slow down a little bit. Maybe, maybe what we're looking at here is the way a woman looks at the age of 40, because that's half of our lifespan, and you can still look fairly attractive. Or, or maybe, and some commentators su- suggest this, maybe perhaps the beauty here is, is suggesting something else, something of an of a in, internal quality about her, a dignity about her, a grace about her. Maybe that was what was beautiful. And, and other commentators, too, also say, like, you know, there were other things that were beautiful. Sometimes what we view as beauty in, in our world and in our day and in our age weren't as attractive to them. They weren't looking for thinness or youthfulness. They were looking for other things. And so maybe, maybe what these Egyptians found attractive about her was maybe a political sense, right? This uh, having her as a wife will give me political strength and power. More wives, more power. Or maybe this was a, uh, there was a, an attraction of this, and, and I'm not saying this to be, to be joking, but this is just how people viewed um, kind of, and were attracted to women. Maybe she had a childbearing value to her. She can give me lots of kids, lots of heirs, and that will make me significant, strong in the gates. Now, the, the problem with those suggestions, of course, and you probably can see right through them, is none of them apply to Sarah, right? As far as I know, Abram is not a king of a land. He is a sojourner in a land. So I don't totally see the value of getting Sarah for political purposes. And and if, and if they're really attracted to Sarah because she can have kids for them, there's one big, huge problem with that. All Abram has to say is, she's barren. She can't have kids. And that would solve all those problems. So it leaves me to suggest that she must have actually been truly beautiful. And this was a problem. And this was a problem. Why was it a problem? Well, because it meant that Abram perhaps could be killed so that men could take his wife for themselves. And we can probably sympathize with Abram really well here. He would have been the one in danger, it seems, right? They'll kill me, but they'll let you live. And perhaps we can even see the rationale behind Abram's reasoning, right, as well. He's saying to himself, what, what's the good in having all these promises if you're dead? So, Sarah, let's just kind of let's just play the long game here. Let's go through a few hard years here in Egypt, and then we can go back and enjoy those promises again when this hard time is over. And notice also that, that Abram is really trying to seek to control the difficulties in his life. And, and this is what we're supposed to do. We're, we're supposed to take control of our lives. But, but notice the very words that Abram uses to try to take control of his life. Notice, notice verse 13, right? Um, do this, say that you're my sister, so what? So that it may go well with me because of you. Abram is trying to control his life. But those very words sound a lot like what God would say to Abram. 
because I'm in your life, it will go well for you because of me. Notice, Abram is, is setting up, setting up some sort of way to gain control in his life because he feels like God, Yahweh, isn't providing him control in his life. So maybe through Sarah I can get blessing and control. He's living like he needs to replace Yahweh. And this is, once again, this is just real life, right? Sometimes Yahweh's promises don't feel so strong, and I need to take control of my own life and my own circumstances. And maybe even he has a strategy here. Maybe as, as, as appearing to be Sarah's brother, Sarai's brother, he is the, the guy with the negotiating power, right? People come to him, hey, I'm kind of interested in your sister. And then Abram goes back and says, well, it will cost you about 20,000 cattle. And the guy's like, oh, that's too expensive, even for her. Uh, you can have her. Uh, I won't go. Uh, and then he just keeps doing this again and again and again. And, and then Abram and Sarai just kind of make their way through their Egyptian sojourning. And she never gets purchased by a would-be husband. And then they survive. And it kind of worked, right? It's kind of human wisdom at its finest. Maybe that's what Abram is thinking about. And you're like, that is so stupid, David. Well, that's what happened. So, but maybe that was what Abram was thinking. And maybe that was his plan and his strategy. But we do know that he, he, he was right about what the Egyptians would say about her, but he was dead probably wrong about who would be the most interested in Sarai. He, he wasn't maybe expecting that Pharaoh himself would take an interest in Sarai. And as soon as Pharaoh takes an interest in your wife, you can't negotiate. It's, it's, there's no negotiating chips left for you, right? I want her. Okay, you can have her. I'm glad I'm her brother. And this, but this, of course, leads to our next problem. Our next problem, we'll call this the seed problem, the line problem, you could say, but we'll just call it the seed problem, the child problem. Until now, until now, in this account, we could, we could interpret it, and we could interpret Abram's actions as kind of expressions of faith, weak faith, right? He goes to the land as a sojourner, an expression of faith. He, he, he pretends to be Sarai's brother as an expression of faith. What, what good are promises if you're dead? He, he is still hoping in God's promises, but now all of these natural solutions have seemed to brought terrible, terrible consequences into his life. What happens? Like I said, verse 15, Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Wasn't expecting this, perhaps. Maybe he was. Maybe he was expecting this completely. But notice, now all of a sudden, all of the promises of God seem very weak. They went from seeing, they, they went from seeming weak to now almost dead completely, right? He was promised to be a great blessing in the land. Now he's out of the land. No family, no land, and definitely no seed. Because his wife is in the harem of Pharaoh. How is he going to get her back? And then this is even a, huge, a bigger problem than the one he was in in the promised land. And he is left to sit alone in his tent all alone. And the worst part, I would suggest, of all of this, is, is this problem. Sarah now being taken away from him despite his efforts to control his situation appears to be all of his fault. Now, a side little, a side little observation for you. Isn't that kind of why God's promises seem weak and distant to us sometimes? It's not because of who God is. It's because of who we are. 
and our weaknesses, right? They, they, they cause us to doubt God's strength because of how weak we are. Yeah, I know God is great, but I am terrible. And I am quick to fear, quick to run, quick to engineer things in my own way that just blow up in my face. And that is why I have such little faith in God. It's because of me. But, but here is where I would suggest to you the purposes of God seem to shine through and we actually find great encouragement in learning about our God in the midst of all of these problems, this land problem, this bride problem, and this seed problem. Here's where we begin to learn about our God. Look at verse 16. Therefore, Pharaoh treated Abram well because of Sarai. And sheep and oxen and donkey and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels came into his possession. Notice that. Well, what did God promise Abram way back in Genesis 12, which was only one chapter ago, so you should still remember this. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. And it appears, despite Abram's failures and faults and problems and weaknesses, God is still acting faithfully to Abram. God is still blessing Abram, even in this place of weakness and and foolishness, perhaps, and, and, a, and a weakness of faith. His, provec- his, his provision and his protection have been invisible, but they've been there all the time. Abram just didn't see it. And perhaps that's our problem, too. We just don't see it. That God is still here and still sovereignly in control and protecting us. And, and it's so blessed to see, even when we are failing, God is still there and still present. Every, every, every early summer, late spring, I have the same problem in my backyard, and it's my lantana. And for some of you who know what lantana is, it's a very woody uh, bush that, that produces lots of beautiful colors. And it's a beautiful bush to look at, if you can stand the smell. Um, and it, it's, it's, it just, it, it's, it's beautiful. But in the springtime, it's always the last plant to produce any flowers. And I'm always thinking the same thing come April and May, early May. Maybe I should pull up that lantana and replace it. Because right now it looks just like a pile of sticks and weeds in my backyard. It looks terrible. But it's always invisibly working. And then it produces some of the most beautiful color in my backyard. Eventually, even though I don't totally see how it's working. And it seems like it's dead. But in reality, it is quietly working outside of my perspective. And, and once again, that's an illustration. What I see here is as how God works, even in our difficult situations where we face problems. God's provision and his protection and his presence are there. We just don't see it. We just don't see it. And sometimes we make bold and rash decisions in our flesh and in sin because we do not see and do not trust in God's provision. But it's there. It's always there. And we see God is even blessing Abram even here in Pharaoh's house. That's how God works. And don't we learn much about our God even there? Perhaps God was, in fact, in charge of all of this. Perhaps God was, in fact, sovereign behind all of this. Maybe God himself was the snitch that told the Egyptians to tell Pharaoh about Sarai. What? God was the snitch? Maybe God intended the famine to decimate the promised land. Maybe God perhaps has Abram right where he wants him, not because God wants his people to suffer, but because he wants to put 
Sarai in a place of danger, put the promises in a place of danger, put Abram in a place of danger. Why? So that Abram can see himself. And maybe he does that to you as well. When your issues of your life and your anxieties seem to pile up, God actually wants you to know yourself. But more importantly, God also wants you to see him as well. He intends to bring Abram and you to the end of yourself so that he can see what's in you and he can also show you how he is holding you. We'll see this in a number of chapters, but Abram has this perspective of God by Genesis 14 that he clearly does not have here in Genesis 12. And that is, I serve the Lord, the possessor of heaven and earth. Therefore, I will not reach for anything. I will I will wait for God's promises. That's a new perspective, because that's definitely not the perspective that Abram has here in Genesis 12. i got, I got to handle my own problems. But by the time he's in Genesis 14, he is looking to the Lord as the God who is sovereign over heaven and earth and can control every situation and can even protect him. Well, we may be wondering, uh, what's your plan for... All of these problems, God, God may be handling our situations in a silent and sneaky way to grow our faith. What does is, what is a grown faith look like? What is God pursuing, perhaps, here in Abram and in his life and perhaps in your life when things are hard? He wants his believers to lay hold of his promises and say, despite my problems, God's promises are ultimately his problem. And I will trust him to handle his problems. If he says he's going to do something, if he says, follow me in this way, I'm going to trust in him to handle all of those problems. There's only so much I can do. I will live with wisdom and obedience as best I can, but ultimately I am not going to worry about my problems because I'm going to say they are God's problems and not mine, because I belong to God. And this brings us to our, our final problem, and this kind of turns the whole story of Abram here in Egypt. I would suggest to you that you also you learn much from God from looking at the Yahweh problem. We've looked at the land problem, the beauty problem, the seed problem. But I also want to point out to you the Yahweh problem. And this is, once again, what God wants you and me to learn in our problems. We want to learn about where Yahweh is in all of this. Yahweh is always greater than all of our problems or all of the individuals that make up our problems. He wants us to know and trust him in all of that. He not only controls all of our situations and the problems we face, he also has a wise purpose in it all. And, and the, the mature, grown-up faith says that. You are in control of my problems and you are wise in my problems. Matter of fact, you have a purpose in my problems for my good and your glory. Verse 17, notice, notice the real problem. The real problem is Yahweh. Uh, Yahweh struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because Sarai, Abram's wife. Uh, Faith basically says, you know what? Yahweh, God, are my problems, greatest problems. I I don't have to worry about my problems because God will handle my problems. Ultimately, the greatest problem to my problems is Yahweh himself. 
Faith also says, and, and this was very helpful to me early on in my Christian life, faith also says, if, if my problems, anxieties, worries are not problems, worries, or anxieties to my sovereign creator and God, then my problems, worries, and anxieties should not be problems to me either. If God is in control of my problems, and if God is wise in my problems, and if God shows his power through my problems, I will choose intentionally every day, every morning, to not let my problems, my anxieties, and my worries to be problems and worries to me. But I will trust him to be in charge. God has a purpose to show his power and his presence. His, his word is 100% reliable, and he wants us to know that. He wants us to know his care, which is 100% sufficient. And he is intending to show Abram his care here. He cares for Abram, even if Abram is out of the country in, in, the, greatest, in the greatest nation, perhaps, that Abram can go to. The Egyptian empire, God, is still stronger than Egypt. Now, notice, notice. Yahweh strikes Egypt with plagues. We don't know exactly what these plagues were. Perhaps they were barrenness, because that's what happened in Genesis 20, when, spoiler alert, Abram does this again with another king. But uh, we do know one thing about these, these plagues that God sends on the house of Pharaoh. They were significant in getting everyone's attention. Everyone knew that God was on Abram's side. Matter of fact, notice what Pharaoh says to Abram, verse 18. Then Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her for myself as a wife. So now, here is my wife, or your wife. Take her and go. So Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. Notice, in the end, God's problems, or God's power is sufficient for all of Abram's problems. And this is what God wants Abram to learn through, through the weakness of seeing his true self on display. He, he sees God is not just the God of Canaan. God is not just the God of Ur. God is not just the God of Haran back home. God is a God of the universe. God is a possessor of the heavens and the earth, and I have nothing to fear with him. Because once again, my problems, my anxieties, my concerns, my issues are not problems or concerns for my sovereign God over the universe. Therefore, I do not let my problems become true problems, true anxieties, true concerns to me. Let's just point out a few lessons, just a few lessons, three to be exact. And they're all on one page, so this should be relatively quick. Uh, Three lessons. I just want you to know... That, that God's promises are sure. God's promises are secure. You may not always feel like they are, but again and again in God's word, we see this. Notice, God's promises are still operating towards his servant when his servant is weak, is a failure, is less than faithful. God is still doing everything that he said he would do. And if that's not a strong promise from God, what is? God's promises are stronger than even me. They may be under the surface. God's provision and his protection may be invisible for a season, but they are still working. God is still blessing Abram. Verse 16, we see that. And notice God is also still cursing those who even get close to injuring Abram, right? God's protection 
uh, might not seem so obvious to you all the time. God's provision might not seem so obvious to you all the time. But notice, just learn the lesson and rejoice in it. There is no problem near God's children that God is not in control of or ordaining or, or, or orchestrating for our good. God is in control of all problems. God means all things for his good or his glory and, and our good. So God's promises are sure, but here's another lesson to take away from this. Our faithlessness will also give us consequences in life. The, the, our faithlessness will bring consequences in our life. The, the, the lesson here is not, oh, just be faithless. Oh, just disobey God and notice he'll just give you all this stuff anyway. He'll bless you anyway. I think God blessed Abram, but there were also very significant consequences. Even though God was providing and caring and fulfilling his promises, just notice some of these consequences. For one, uh, Sarai is in danger, right? Uh, Abram is, is kind of treating his wife coldly here. He's only thinking about himself and not thinking about Sarai at all. And his actions put his wife in danger. You can look also at Abram's name, his reputation. The Pharaoh kicks him out of Egypt, doesn't seem too excited about Abram ever coming back again. That's a consequence of Abram's faithlessness. And then there's also the idea that, hey, where do you think that Abram and Sarai picked up Hagar, her, her, her servant? Probably from Egypt, right? There's some consequences that flood from faithlessness in our life. And this is not an excuse to just sin that grace may abound. This is, a, this is a reality. God's promises are sure. God's promises continue. But that doesn't mean consequences will not come about in our life. But then the third lesson, God is exceedingly wise. And this is the whole theme of the whole series, the reason we're in this whole Life of Abraham study anyway. Because I want you to see God's incredible wisdom in your life. It, it, it's not a wisdom, you see this, that gets you out of problems. It's a wisdom that knows you totally and knows what is best for growing your faith completely. And it is a wisdom that chooses the best ends, the best means, sometimes the most painful means to show you who you are so that you get to see who God is in your problems and how much bigger he is. That's what we see in Abram. We see a God who orchestrates difficulties and weaknesses, even lowness. So that Abram can see who God is. And that's the same God that's in your life. A God that's completely wise. Your situation. Say it to yourself today. Your situation, your sibling, uh, your, your school choices are a direct, uh, direct shoot from the wisdom of God. And you need to receive that with joy and receive it with a willing, soft heart, ready to learn, ready to trust, ready to obey. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, thank you for this, this morning that we get to spend in your word. Thank you for your promises that are rich and encouraging. Thank you for your presence that is sure. And thank you for your wisdom that is kind. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.